If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Leading Learning Podcast. One of the things we try to do each week on the podcast is to look at trends that are developing out there in the world of lifelong learning, uh, try to curate the, the best ideas and practices, and bring those to you as part of the podcast. And actually, this time around, we're talking to somebody who's even more of an expert at that than we are. So Lisa, you had the chance to talk with Rohit Bargava. That's right. And for the past five years... Rohit's done an annual trend report, um, and uh, recently he, he put together a book based around um, the, the current trend report, but then also really digging into how he goes about finding those trends. So the book is called Non-Obvious, How to Think Different, Curate Ideas, and Predict the Future. And um, I know when I read the book, I thought it was a, a really interesting approach, both in terms of the individual trends, but what I really liked then was this uh, idea of, okay, how does he come up with the trends? How does he pay attention? And I think especially when it comes to trends, it can be about jumping on, on the bandwagon. You hear one trend, and then everybody goes, oh, yeah, that's a trend, and then it sort of has a snowballing effect, and, and really that may not be the most uh, obvious or interesting or applicable trend. And so I really like his sort of uh, spin of, of looking for the non obvious. Well, and he's going to be speaking at the Leading Learning Symposium this year, so looking forward to hearing about how he goes uh, about curating those trends, what his process is, and then, you know, of course, what he sees coming down the pipe. But we're about to get a little bit of that right here in the podcast, so let's get on with the interview. This is Salisa Steele with the Leading Learning Podcast, and today I'm talking with Rohit Bhargava. He's an expert in helping organizations and individuals be more influential. He's the founder of the Influential Marketing Group. He's a best-selling author and a a curator of non-obvious trends. So thank you for joining me today, Rohit. Thanks for having me, Salisa. So I offered a little bit about you, but would you please tell uh, listeners a little bit more about what you do and, and your background? Sure. Yeah, I uh, have spent most of my career in uh, marketing and branding, so I'm a marketing guy, uh, and I spend a lot of time now teaching organizations and helping individual leaders and employees learn how to see around the corner, uh, train themselves to use their powers of observation and try and predict what's going to happen in their industry. So predict the future. Yeah, that's for real. Great. Yeah. Well, and I love that idea about seeing around corners because, right, it's not just enough to see ahead. It's what's yeah, best there. That's behind. right. Um, and yep. I know, I know that curation is a is a big part of what you do. Can you talk a little bit about what curation means to you and how you see savvy organizations using curation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that's been very interesting for me as a uh, marketing person is just how much your ideas and view of today are shaped by the stories that stick in your head. And so for me, one of the big things that I started doing early on when I first started writing about trends about five years ago is I started collecting ideas and then analyzing them on a macro level over a long period of time. Uh, And I think the time thing was a pretty important thing for me because a lot of times what we do is we hear an interesting idea or we see an interesting story, we save it or we write it down or we bookmark it on our uh, web browser and then we just kind of forget about it. 
And eventually when we come back to it, we're like, what, what did I think was so cool about that? I don't exactly remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one of the things I really had to do was find a discipline around what I curated so that I would remember why I curated it in the first place. Well, and I think that idea of, um, right, not only do you need to be collecting, and I think this is a point you make in non-obvious, you, you've got to be collecting, but you also have to be um, allowing yourself the time to, to, to reflect and to contemplate on, on what you've been collecting. Yeah, I mean, I liken it to the same way that most of us get frequent flyer miles, which is, you know, when you travel somewhere, you collect those miles, but you don't use them in the same moment that you collect them. You save them up until that moment when you want to take that trip. And now you've got enough miles to take it uh, and then you use it. And I think if we treat our ideas that way, we set ourselves up <clears throat> for a little bit less pressure in the moment because we don't have to use the idea right now. It's okay to collect it and let it sit there until you do use it. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so do you have any recommendations for um, how organizations, you know, so not necessarily at the, the individual or personal level, but, you know, how organizations can kind of um, really – take full benefit of curation and, and make sure that they're uh, tuned in to, to their market and what's going on out there. Any, any suggestions about sort of how to do that at the organizational level? Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, the, the first thing I'd say, and maybe it's, maybe this isn't the right way to answer the question, but I think that the wrong way to do that is to rely on some sort of magical software uh, mm. tool to solve that problem for you. Uh, and I think a lot of times what we do is we implement some sort of internal sharing tool and we say, oh, now that we have this tool, all of a sudden we're all going to start sharing stuff and uh, collaboration is going to be improved and we're going to um, be able to improve everything about what we do. And I think that software doesn't necessarily lead to behavior change. And in some cases, it is the uh, it is sort of going against what the established behaviors are because now you're asking people to communicate or save things in a different way. And so what, what I think the right way to do it is to make people aware of what others do outside of their job. And, you know, ultimately to me, it comes down, that principle comes down to empathy Mm. because empathy is essentially putting yourself into someone else's situation and gaining understanding because of that. And I think if we let our, if we help our organizations do a better job of having one person in one role empathize with people in other roles, a lot of other issues that we tend to have at work tend to solve themselves. Right. Well, and, and empathy being the uh, a natural way to break down those silos that I know can happen in so many organizations where you 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 don't even have visibility into what's going on in, in another area, much less empathy with, with what another uh, person in a different role might be experiencing. Yeah. I think that what ends up happening is we tend to think that what we are doing and what we're working on is more important than what somebody else is working on. Mm. Um, and that's just natural human behavior. Um, but we have to challenge ourselves to, to get outside of that. And I think the way that relates to curation is the more you think about uh, the ideas that you find or the thoughts that you have as adding to a central um, store of information, the more you're able to contribute to something other than just what you're focusing on. Right. Right. And, and I know you don't specifically focus on, you know, uh, learning or, or education, but obviously you're out there looking at, at 
trends very broadly uh, in in society. So I'm just curious if there's um, you know anything happening with with learning or education now that that you're finding particularly exciting. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure that I. Uh, that I would agree with that though. Like I do actually spend a lot of my time with learning and education because, uh, you know, in addition to coming up with the trends, a big part of what I've started doing now is helping organizations and individuals learn to see trends for themselves. Right. And I think that, you know, what it comes down to, I mean, you said like, what is the, what's the piece that makes this, um, makes this work? What's the piece that kind of is, the magic, if there is magic, um, and I'm I'm a big student of uh, of this because I, I teach a class at uh, Georgetown University all around public speaking, and you know to me when you teach a topic like that, you have to adapt your teaching methods because not everyone is going to learn something like public speaking the same way, and not everyone's going to deliver a talk the same way, and so you have to find the individual's comfort zones and encourage them to find those for themselves. And to me, that's what education has come down to for a lot of this. It's, you know, helping people find the right process or comfort zone for them to be able to take what I'm telling them is effective, i.e., you know, curation or seeing around the corner or paying attention to things that they typically don't pay attention to and helping them to find the right way to do that for themselves. Right. Well, great. No, and, and you're right. Absolutely. So much of, I guess, I was momentarily sort of thinking about your, your, your marketing background. But right, absolutely. Of course, you're engaged in learning, both you know, in terms of your role at at, at Georgetown and teaching, and then I, you know, I think arguably everything is about learning. And clearly, when you're looking for those trends, that's to me, uh, yeah, an, an educational activity you're engaging in. Um, and you know, for me, it's interesting because. Um, Continuing education and professional development have been such um, a key role that, that associations play in, in our society and in our economy, but we've seen a lot change there in recent years that's kind of made their um, leadership role in, in that area a little less certain. Um, you know, members have a lot more choices now. Technology has um, lowered a lot of um, barriers to entry so that, you know, more competitors have, have come in and opened up a range of options. So, you know, any um, perspective or advice, you know, for, for associations in, in terms of kind of dealing with these, these more uncertain times? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I spent a lot of time in the association world. I mean, just being based in D.C., you kind of, uh, <laughs> you kind of fall into it, I think. Right. Um, What's interesting to me about so many associations is that when it comes to learning, they're so singularly focused on helping their members see the best of what's available in that industry mm-hmm. that they don't typically look at their role as bringing insights from outside the industry into it. And, you know, for me, as somebody who spends a lot of time looking across industries and, you know, I'll, I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a, a healthcare organization and said, look, this is what you can learn from fashion retailers about how they do business and how that applies to healthcare. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, in the book, I call that intersection thinking, which is probably pretty obvious what that means. But the idea behind it is something that I really think associations could become the champion of. I mean, who better to go into an industry and say, hey, our industry needs to pay attention to this other industry that has nothing to do with us because part of what they're doing could be applicable for us. 
Well, yeah, and I, I was a, a liberal arts uh, un- undergrad, and I think for me, I, I, I do love that the intersection thinking and that idea of, you know, okay, you're not, you're not specializing yet, and yeah, so thinking beyond the industry, thinking uh, out, and, and then seeing how that may ultimately influence, um, you know, thinking specific to that industry or specific to that profession, but you have to have that broader perspective to, to really have some well, to play that leadership role and to keep um, bringing uh, unexpected and and useful things um, t- to members. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's so ironic that uh, that so many of us. I mean, we celebrate the legendary business stories that we've heard of stuff like you know Steve Jobs taking the calligraphy class and then adding fonts into the first Macintosh, and we like know that story and we 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 celebrate it. And yet, when it comes to our roles in our industries, we don't take that same approach. We don't try and follow that. Um, and one of the questions I tend to ask and, and challenge people with is, well, why not? Why couldn't we? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, when we're thinking about kind of looking out there and seeing some of um, these trends, I know that one thing you wrote in, um, in Not Obvious is that you talk about the fact that that a trend has proof in three critical areas in idea and impact and uh, acceleration. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that. Cause I really like that idea of the, those kind of three pieces there. Yeah. I mean, I, my definition of a trend is that it's an observation about the accelerating present. And, you know, the reason why I define a trend that way is because I believe the basis of every trend that matters is already happening right now. And so, you know, unlike a lot of trend forecasters or futurists who look at all sorts of interesting technological stuff and say, well, by 2050, we'll be controlling our toasters in our homes with our brains, mm-hmm. you know, and like that might be true, but there's very little evidence of that today. And it's basically kind of guesswork. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas what I do is I look at trends on an annual basis. And every January, I publish a new edition of my trend report. And it features 15 specific trends that are changing business in the coming year. And so my horizon is very short term because I think that for businesses, even long term decisions are made in the short term. And so what I spend my time on is reading the signs that are already happening. And then, like you said, looking at the idea, looking at whether it's having an impact, and then really focusing on the acceleration because that's where it becomes a trend, right? When more and more people start paying attention to it and they start changing their behavior, they start changing how they buy, sell, or believe something based on that observation. And so really what I'm doing is I'm becoming a uh, an early noticer, if you will. I mean, I think that's what um, good work when it comes to trends is. You notice things before other people notice them. Mm-hmm. And then you interpret them and say, well, if this is really going to play out the way I think it's going to play out, then that means I need to change something about my business. Right. Great. And, and, you know, you've, we've talked about curation. We've talked about how that's um, something that you do, how you collect these, these things and then carve out time to look back at them. So I know curation is going to be at least part of your answer, but would you talk um, a bit more about your approach to your own lifelong learning. You know, how do you keep learning and growing your knowledge and your skills and your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I'm. Uh, I think I'm a little bit lucky. Not to you know give too much credit to my circumstance, but you know the fact that I happen to be in a consulting kind of world where I have the chance to work in many different industries. I have clients in lots of different categories. The nature of my work forces me to be 
uh, across multiple industries. And I know that some people don't have that luxury. I mean, if you spent all day working in the financial services industry, then that's your industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but to your other part of the question, which is how, what habits have I developed in order to learn? I mean, I take advantage of the opportunities that I have to learn something different or uh, probably useless. <laughs> and, you know, and I think that if you just think about that statement for a little while, like how many opportunities do we take to learn useless things? And why don't we take more of those, right? Because I get it. I get that it takes time. And, you know, I speak at 40 events a year uh, in a lot of different industries. And it'd be very easy for me as the, you know, as the keto speaker to fly in, do my talk in the morning and fly out. Done. But a lot of times I stay and I have unexpected conversations about, you know, why paint containers are round as opposed to square or, you know, farming methods in agriculture or, uh, you know, at another event that was all about uh, um, content and inbound marketing and what uh, works and how to optimize certain things in various categories for conversion rates. And I mean, it's just like all sorts of different categories of stuff. And, you know, some of it is more interesting than other things. I'm not going to lie and say I'm fascinated by everything I've ever heard, right? I mean, the paint bucket thing, not not that interesting. But uh, you never know where you'll find a nugget of an idea. And I think that the more you can learn about what excites people, the more as a speaker, I have the chance to go in front of many different audiences and really read the audience, right? Because really the skill I'm building as a speaker, it's easy to think, okay, well, you're, if you're a professional speaking, then you just have to be entertaining on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other side of that is you have to be able to read an audience and what they care about and the sort of tone of who they are. And the only way to do that is to get better at conversing with people, people you don't know. And so, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to do that because I think it makes me better. So there's a selfish motivation behind it, but that's the way I try and approach the situations I get. Well, and so you, you've just started talking about this, but you, you're going to be the keynoter at the Leading Learning Symposium. And so, um, you know, maybe talk a little bit more about any recommendations you have for those coming to the symposium. You know, what what would help them get the most out of hearing you? You know, how do the, the best audiences interact with you when, when you're speaking? Um, I love the, the sort of audience that will uh, not hyper-focus themselves on capturing everything but rather pull out the few things that will actually impact what they do tomorrow. And so I you know I think that we don't do a great job of teaching people how to listen. Specifically listen in a conference type of setting to a speaker. And so a lot of times what we're used to is going through school where uh, the way we learned to take notes was to write down everything. <laughs> and so if you look at some of your notes from high school, like it's probably just pages and pages of basically what the book already said, right. which is totally useless and you never look at that. So I think you know one of the things that I would tell any audience is you know, give your attention to what's going on and the stories that are being told. And then instead of writing down what I say or writing down what I put on screen as words, write down what it made you think of. Because that'll be much more useful notes for you than anything I put on my slides. And at the end of the day, like you'll have my slides afterwards. Um, so why sit there trying to copy things from there? And my slides don't tend to have many words anyway. So, you know, even if you had the temptation to like write down everything, you really wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, they're just pictures. So <laughs> um, I sort of force you to, to do that, right? But um, 
my point would be like write down those big ideas, those big things that are going to change what you do. And I think you'll get a lot more out of listening to any speaker. This is not just about me. This is just in general. No, I think that's excellent advice. You're right. I mean, there is, there is no test. This isn't high school. It's not. You're not going to be quizzed on, on, on your you know seven points. It's about which which one of those or two of those or three of those points actually resonate with you as the listener, and what are you going to be able to apply? That's great. Yep. And so to to wrap up, I just wanted to ask you know what are the best places for people to find out more about you or, or to connect with you. Uh, the best place is probably my website. Everything's linked from there. It's just my full name, so rohitbargava.com. That's the ideal place, I think, um, to get anything about me. Um, and then also there's uh, some free excerpts and things for the book available at the book website, which is nonobviousbook.com, all one word. Well, great. Well, thank you very much for your time and for your uh, insight, Rohit. Thank you. So that's a wrap for our interview with Rohit Bhargava. To get show notes for this episode, just go to leadinglearning.com slash episode nine. And while you're there, you will see there are various options for subscribing to the podcast. If that's not something you've done yet and you're getting value out of the podcast, we'd really be grateful if you would subscribe. And it would also be great if you would uh, take a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. To do that, you can go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. Uh, we really do appreciate it. We pay attention to the reviews. And more importantly, it actually helps other listeners who might benefit and find value in this podcast. Be sure to find it. And finally, consider telling others about the podcast. If you haven't spread the word yet, you can use Twitter to do that. Uh, simply go to leadinglearning.com slash share, and that will automatically pop up a tweet that's got some language in it that you can use or modify as you see fit, and then just tweet that right out. Or you can take that same language and put it into Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, whatever your social media network of choice is. But we'd really be grateful if you would, in fact, share the podcast. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.